0: Come on, man. As a matter of fact, I want you to say with everybody in the room, come on, man. Come on, man. Doesn't just, that's just a great thing to be able to say, isn't it? it just you, know, you, you can say, come on, ladies. It just doesn't sound the same. It's just, it's just not the, it doesn't have the same ring to it as, come on, man. And over the next few weeks as a church, we're going to be laser focused on the biblical concept of masculinity. And, and I really believe with everything that I have that it is the, the desire of every single healthy, God-honoring man that his family, his, his friends, his coworkers, his community, even his country, would have a little bit of faith in us. I, I think that's part and parcel of what it means to be a guy. Now, it's very, very important. That, that you ladies understand that this series is designed as much for you as it is for any of the men of the house. Because I believe, with everything I have over the next few weeks, through this series, God is gonna give you a, a deeper, more profound understanding of the male of our species. Women, are there any of you who have too much understanding of men in the house? Let me just, now, the fact of the matter is, we're not that complicated. We're, we're really not. I mean, I know Julie was, was shocked when we first got married, and we'd be sitting at home, hanging out, just the two of us, and I could sit there for untold minutes, even hours, quiet, silent, and she was like, what are you thinking? I'd be like, nothing. And I will never forget the, the incredulous look on her face, like, you're, you're not thinking anything. I'm like, nope really not there's nothing going through your mind no I mean I'm just hanging what are you doing we really really and I think that's part of what confounds women about men you you, because you all are so relationally astute you you have a a, that that women's intuition that is so very real that's a God-given gift you're so far ahead you're playing chess while we're playing checkers you can't imagine that we're that simple. We're that simple. And this is, this is part of the wisdom that God has, I think, in store for all of us over the next few weeks. Now, I, I thought about starting this sermon with the theme from Jaws. Because the fact of the matter is, we are going to be wading into some shark-infested waters today and over the next few weeks because you and I live in a, in a culture that is marked by confusion and and chaos and uncertainty where the roles of men and women are concerned and and how we interact on on a fundamental, functional level day in and day out. I remember as I was preparing and praying for this series, I couldn't help but think about when I was coming out of high school 100 years ago, the United States Marines had a recruiting campaign that some of you might remember, but it went a little something like this. Check this out. You begin with raw steel. Shape it with fire, muscle, and sweat. Polish it to razor sharp perfection. We're looking for a few good men with a medal to be Marines. Raw steel, shaped in fire, muscle, and sweat. Now, you know what's funny? I went back and looked that up. That was 1985, the year I graduated high school. And there was no mistaking, that campaign of the United States Marines was aimed at half of the demographic that was all about what a few good a few good men contrast that just one generation later with the current marine recruiting campaign check this out no one knows where it comes from Some have it, and some don't. It's the fighting spirit, and it needs to be fed. It consumes fear, self-doubt, and weakness. It stands, ready to protect those in danger. Fight whatever shape the battle takes, because as long as there are battles, there will always be Marines. Now, I don't think I'm jumping too far out on the cultural limb to say that if the United States Marines are wrestling with this, this is kind of part and parcel of the world that you and I live in. And yet, it's into the middle of this vortex of confusion and and chaos in our world that God speaks incredible clarity, incredible peace, and comfort, I believe, to help us understand how this plays out at its most fundamental levels. Now, it's very important that all of us understand as we launch this series together, our goal in this series is not political correctness. Our goal in this series is biblical correctness. We want to understand how God has wired up the world and specifically, how he has wired up men and women to function in his world. And not just how, but why. For us to understand why it is that God did what he did. If you've got a Bible with you, look in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is all the way back at the very, very beginning. And there's a passage in Genesis 1 that I think a lot of times we skate over, just kind of considering that it's just kind of some little details, but In reality, there is a lot of theological punch and power packed into Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. This is what the Bible says. So God created man in his own image. And the word man in this context means humanity, all of people, mankind. God created people in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Check this out. Male. And female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And this really is kind of the foundational baseline for this series. You might want to write this down on your notes page that's in the program that you got when you came in so that you have this to come back to. Here's here's the bottom line. Men and women are different I'm, just, I'm just, just putting it out there. Men and women are different. We're, we're different. And a lot of times we, we, we try to act like those differences aren't there. You know, I grew up in the 70s and the 80s when the, the women's movement was really coming into full fruition. And, and, and there was a lot of talk about women's equality with men. But as I've gotten older, I, I've kind of got a question. Women, why would you settle for equality with men? That's a really low bar. I mean, to be equal with men is not anything. Now, to be sure, God created male and female, and God values men and women equally. The Bible tells us that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, it says specifically that in Christ Jesus, there is neither male nor female. Neither one has favoritism in God's economy. But when it comes to the roles that we play in this world, the roles that we play in our families, there are absolutely God-given, God-ordained differences between men and women. Now, when it says that God created people in his image... That means that you and I enjoy a status that is shared with no other part of creation. It is only humanity that is created in the image of God. Now, to be sure, animals and and nature and the rest of God's created order are good. He created them, but it is only people that bear the image, that convey the image of God. And that's why, if you go a little further in Genesis and you see When God created Adam first and placed him in the Garden of Eden, it was only at that point in the creation process that God looked in and said, Ruh-roh, this is not good. Remember, he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. At every other step along the way throughout creation, God had said, it is good. There is day and night. The first day, it is good. There are trees and grass. It is good. There are birds and fish. And beasts of the field, it is good. But when he saw Adam alone, he said, this ain't good. And it wasn't just because Adam was a slob. We don't don't know that necessarily. But it was because a man cannot, by himself, in his masculinity, adequately convey the image of God. There, There are parts of God's character and personality that are decidedly, feminine. Now we know that God is our heavenly father, but the Bible also tells us that God will care for his people like a mother cares for her young. The book of Psalms tells us that God is beautiful in his glory. And so there there are decidedly parts of his character that are feminine that women, by the grace of God, we are so grateful you carry. There's There's a feminine strength and power that you carry You are the ones who bring life into the world as God brought life into the world. And so we celebrate that similarity that you share with God. But on the flip side of that coin, there there are parts that men, parts of God's personality that men carry. The Bible also tells us that God is a warrior, that he is the king, that he is a good father. And so those are decidedly masculine. But it's only when, when male and female come together... And are seen in total that we have an accurate view of the personality, of the character, of who God is. And just by the way, that's why in God's economy, sex is so important. And it's so sanctified, and it's so holy, and it's so protected in the covenant of relational marriage. One man, one woman, one life, because it's in the sexual act that a man and a woman come together and portray the image and the character and nature of God. So even sex is theological in its origins. There there are a lot of other ways that it plays out, but it is ultimately a theological act that conveys the image and personality of God. I mean, wow, who knew? We just got up this morning, had some coffee, and came to church, but there's a lot going on in male and female. Now, to understand who it is that we're called to be as men, I want you to go to the book of 1 Samuel. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 13, put a finger there, and then go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. We'll get there in just a few minutes. But in 1 Samuel chapter 13, David is being prepared to be the next king of Israel. Saul, we know, was the first king of Israel. And Saul came to the throne as the first king with unlimited, unbounded potential. The Bible says that he looked like a leading man candidate. If you'd have seen Saul just in a group of people, you'd have been like, that's the next king. That's the guy. He was tall. He was handsome. He was a warrior. He had it going on. But, everybody say, "But." but. Saul had some problems. He had a a problem with anger and rage control. He had a severe problem with pride. He, He had incredible relational issues of jealousy and coveting. And it was because of all of these things that ultimately God would strip away the kingdom of Israel from Saul and his heirs. But before God stripped it away from Saul, he let Saul know... There was somebody coming behind him that that God had already chosen who would be the second king of Israel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 13, the prophet Samuel, chosen by God, speaking to King Saul, says this. He says, the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not Kept the Lord's command. The Lord is seeking out a man after his own heart. Now we know at this point David is a young boy. He's he's growing up the youngest of Jesse's sons in a little Palestinian backwater named Bethlehem. Bethlehem, I mean, was a tiny little podunk town like Cut and Shoot. I mean, there was no there there in Bethlehem. But David was a man after God's own heart. And what God was seeking out a thousand years before Jesus continues to this day 2,000 years after Jesus walked on this earth. God continues to seek out men after his own heart. He continues to seek out women after his own heart. He is looking for people who will follow him with everything that they've got. That's what this series is all about. That's what is wrapped up in this. But fast forward to 1 Samuel chapter number 17, and we see David kind of making his debut on the public stage. He's already been anointed as the next king, but he hasn't been installed yet. God hasn't removed Saul from power. And this is David's debut in the most unlikely of circumstances. 1 Samuel chapter 17 is the story of David and Goliath. Now, whether you've read the story of David and Goliath verse by verse, we're all familiar with the iconic nature of this story. It's it's David versus Goliath. It's the giant versus the runt. It's the underdog versus the big dog. And just to kind of give you a a little measure of the tape, if you will, like they do in boxing or MMA, let me just kind of let you know who David was facing when he came to face Goliath. Goliath, the Bible tells us, was nine feet tall. Nine feet. I'm standing here, I'm only 6'8". So when you, I'm just kidding, I'm not really. I'm 6'1". How many of you have ever been in the room with somebody who was seven feet tall? Let me just see a show of hands. Have you been in the room with somebody that tall? You don't understand tall. I remember when I was a kid, we flew back into Houston from a family trip one time. The same time the Houston Rockets got back into town, their their plane came to the gate. And I remember watching the Rockets come off the plane. And, you know, the first ones off the plane are the Scrubs, you know, like 6'4", 6'5", 6'8". And I was like, man, those guys are just huge. But then Otis Thorpe, 6'10". Akeem Olajuwon, 6'10", 6'11", 7', depending on what program you're reading. Ralph Sampson, 7'4". Inches tall. I, I, I'm still in shock as I remember it standing here this morning. Unbelievable, Goliath. Goliath would have had one foot eight inches on Ralph Sampson. He was a pituitary wonder. Now, not only was was Goliath massive. His his equipment was massive. His armor weighed 125 pounds. Try that on for size the next time you want to do a CrossFit workout with a weight vest. 125. The tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds. He was a monster. But here comes David. David, who, by the way, wasn't even a registered soldier in Israel's army. If you go and read the actual details of this account, David was only there on the battle lines that day because his father Jesse had sent him with snacks for his older brothers. He he said, here, take some bread and some grain to your brothers so that they can eat on the front lines. So here comes David skipping up to the battle lines. Hey, guys, want something to eat? And he hears Goliath who has come out for 40 days taunting the nation of Israel, the God of Israel. And David's ears kind of perk up. And, and then he hears a rumor going around the camp that King Saul has promised whoever defeats Goliath will be given one of Saul's daughters as a wife. Now, at this point, David perks up. David's like, huh? what did he say? And I'm like, no, if, if you whoever kills Goliath we'll get one of Saul's daughter as his wife. David's like, well, I may just take a shot. But it wasn't only Saul's daughter as his wife that motivated David. There there was something else going on in the heart and the mind of David. And he begins to to offer his services. And his brother, Eliab, say Eliab. Eliab. Now you can all speak Hebrew. Eliab looks at his little brother like a big brother would and is like, shut up. Just just sit down. I, I know what you're doing here. You th- you said you came over here to bring us bread and grain and you know wine and cheese or whatever, but you're just here for the glory. You you just want to make a name for yourself. And David does not engage. Isn't that brilliant? Students, this is brilliant. Family warfare. Just don't engage. Just don't engage. I remember my brothers are twins. They're two years younger than me, and, and they used to chase me. They would gang up on your pastor. I was bullied as a child, and they would, they would gang up on me, and I, I would run from them, and my mom would come in there, and she goes, enough, stop. Cease and desist. That's what my mom used to say. We had a fascinating household. And I'd be like, Mom, they're chasing me. My mom would say this, they can't chase you if you don't run. Just don't engage. David did not engage. He wasn't there to fight Eliab. He was there to fight Goliath. A lot of times we're fighting the wrong battles. We're not fighting Goliath. We're we're spending our time on these little skirmishes over here that don't mean anything. But David didn't even engage with Eliab, and he said, I'm going to take out Goliath. Word gets back to Saul, and Saul summons David to his tent. And And he says, I want to meet this young man who wants to take out Goliath. And David comes, hey, king. Voice still changing. And Saul goes, oh, my gosh, in the original Hebrew. He said, what? You, you're, you're a boy. You're, you're a I've got an army full of trained warriors, and none of them will even consider taking out Goliath. You're a boy. Look at what David says. 1 Samuel 17, verses 34 through 35. But David said to Saul, your servant, underline that. Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and I rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Now, time out for just a second. This is a fascinating conversation. David has already been anointed as the next king of Israel. He, he knows he will one day replace Saul. And yet when Saul questions his desire to take out Goliath, how does David refer to himself? He says, your servant, your your servant, David understood God's gift of authority. He understood God's gift of authority. He knew that he would be the king. He would be sitting on that same throne one day. He would be leading Israel into battle. But he knew that God had installed Saul in that role. And until God removed Saul from that role, it was not David's place to take it. And so he referred to himself as Saul's servant. He said, your servant has, has, you know, I've taken care of my father's sheep. Which, by the way, I don't know if you have any experience with sheep. It's not a glamorous gig. I mean, Sheep are incredibly valuable and incredibly dumb animals. They smell horrific. David was the forgotten last son of Jesse. When Samuel came to anoint one of Jesse's sons, they almost didn't even bring David in from the back 40. But David understood biblical authority and David was faithful where God placed him. As long as he was tending his father's flock, he was tending his father's flock. He was taking care of what was right in front of him. And it was in that taking care of what was right in front of him that David was prepared for what God had already prepared for him. You see, God knew that this confrontation with Goliath was coming. And as long as David was faithful as his father's shepherd boy, God was preparing him. He was getting him ready. He was equipping him. He was giving him experience. He was giving him God confidence to be able to handle this confrontation. He says, look, I, I, I got this. I, I've, I've, been able, I've taken down bears and lions. This is, this is a human being. Now, he's big, but it, this, this is a person. David goes on, verse 34, I'm sorry, verse 36 and 37. He says again, Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. So Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Go and the Lord be with you. Isn't that a moment? Wouldn't we all love, men and women alike, to have the confidence rooted in experience and the courage? To go face Goliath. Now, I I don't know what your Goliath is this morning. I, I don't know what giants are staring you down, calling you out, and defying God's presence in your life. But I do know this. We've all got them. No one lives a Goliath-free existence. No one. Your Goliath may be, maybe maybe your Goliath is, is like Saul. It's, it's anger. And you've got kind of like a, just a hair-trigger rage. And, and it's something that just that just kind of happens, and you you kind of know that it's there, but the people in your life really know that it's there, and it's a... It's a minefield that they live in. They're never really sure where to step or, or what's going to set you off or, or, or trigger. I don't know. Maybe for you, maybe your Goliath, maybe your Goliath is, is unforgiveness. May, maybe you've got, and it may be something that was absolutely legitimate, that, that somebody wounded you, wronged you. Maybe somebody deep in your past who's not even alive anymore, but you've just kind of held on to that. And, and listen, I get it. I, can we just be, let's just be straight with each other. Sometimes it is fun to stay mad, isn't it? Am I the only one that feels that way? Somebody, don't leave me hanging up here, okay? I mean, sometimes it's just fun to stay mad and, and, and I've, I've, man, I've done, I've been like, I know I should forgive them. But right now, I'm just enjoying being really, really peeved, or words to that equivalent. But that unforgiveness, it, it actually only works on me. It's only toxic to me. If I don't forgive, it ends up infecting my life, my relationships, my work, my parenting, my husbanding. Maybe your Goliath is, is a work issue. And I, I don't mean like a little challenge or a nuisance. I mean like you, maybe you've got a massive, massive professional Goliath in your life. Maybe your Goliath is, is pornography. And you've, you've tried to to rationalize it away and you, you call it a victimless crime and nobody really knows. It's not a really, it's not, but you know, you know that in your heart of hearts, it is degrading and diminishing who God created you to be. And, and that's, that's just a, a, a Goliath that, that you can't quite seem to kill by yourself. Now, Next week, we're, we're going to talk about how you defeat Goliath. But, but today, I, I want to just encourage you. I want you to understand the power and the reality of surrendering Goliath to God. Of, of lifting that up and, and knowing, not just in here in the friendly confines of a Sunday morning, but throughout this week when Goliath rears his ugly head and, and that... You know, you see the 15-pound tip of that spear, and you see the 125 pounds of armor and the nine-foot-tall Goliath rearing his ugly, nasty, stinky-breath head in your life. Just go, in God's name, I got this. Because here's what you know to be true, like David knew to be true. God hasn't brought you all the way this far to leave you hanging. That's what David was saying. He said, listen, I fought the bear. I fought the lion. I've taken care of sheep, but I know that I can defeat this giant because of the presence of God. Not only was David being prepared and equipped skill-wise, he was being prepared and equipped in his spirit. And by virtue of the fact that you've got breath, you can know that God has brought you to this point, preparing you for what he's got on the other side already prepared for you. But you've got to run to the battle line. You've got to be willing to step up. And when God calls you out and says, come on, man, you get up and you get going. When God says, come on, woman, you step up to that battle line to be exactly who God created you to be, to do what he's called you to do. This is a divine appointment. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this moment, I want to invite you to submit your Goliath to God. Not only for this moment, but as a practice run for when you step back into the battlefield this afternoon, tomorrow morning as you walk into your place of business, as you prepare a family for the week, you keep your eyes on the prize and you remember This isn't about Goliath, this is about your God. And that in Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors. If you're here today and you've never stepped into a relationship with God, you've never committed your life to God, we want to invite you to do exactly that. Just to pray a prayer of commitment, a prayer of beginning. Just silently, right where you are, talk to God. He's perfect, He knows your heart already, anyway, but communicate with Him. This is a relationship, and you pray that prayer of commitment. Just silently, right where you're sitting, just say, Just silently say in your own words, just Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you. I claim your forgiveness. And I will follow you from this moment forward with everything I've got. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. If you would just remain with your heads bowed for a a moment. A holy moment. But if that was your prayer and you meant it, then I want to make sure that you understand this is the greatest moment of your life. And I want to invite you to do just a couple of things to stamp this moment, but also to, to propel yourself into what's next, what God has for you. If you would just Fill out the Connect card that's in your program. Fill that out and indicate that I committed my life to Christ this week. Just go ahead and you can do that right now. And you can tear it off at the perforation and just hand that to one of our ushers before you leave today. Or maybe at the the blue tent out underneath the big lobby over here. And what that'll do is that allows us to just be a family of faith. It starts a conversation that will proceed at at whatever pace you prefer, but we're available and we want to help. And then second, as our heads are bowed in this sacred moment, if you would just raise your hand, just raise your hand and stamp this moment both in your life, but also in the life of this church family. Because there's nothing more important to us than when God does that in somebody's life. The Bible says that when one person comes to faith in Christ, that all of heaven celebrates. And so we like to kind of identify with what God identifies with. And so we celebrate that with you. We honor that as, your church family, as you put your hands down, we put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.